has been 10,911 days since the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, and you are parked in the access aisle. June is Pride Month, a time where the LGBTQ plus community celebrates our various identities, histories, and our resilience and resistance. Members of the LGBTQ plus community come from various backgrounds, and many of us are also people with disabilities. It is estimated that over one third of LGBTQ plus people are also people with disabilities. I have two panelists here today who are members of both communities. Would y'all go ahead and introduce yourself with your name, pronouns, and a little bit about yourself. My name is Aja Jones, and I use she, her, hers, and they, them, theirs pronouns. I am a non-binary lesbian. I am an equip leader at Able South Carolina, and a fun fact is that I am currently watching She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. My name is Julie Edwards. I use she, her, hers pronouns. I'm your local bi-pan queer cat lady. I have three cats and a dog who acts like a cat. I am an activist. I've done work with Indivisible Midlands as well as other local organizations and excited to be here. And my name is Effie Francis. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm a non-binary transgender as well as pansexual person. As far as work goes, I'm a licensed esthetician and makeup artist by trade. So love to beat me some faces, make them look cute, working on skincare, <laughs> do it for all my friends. And then I am also a queer and disabled activist on every day that ends with Y. Awesome. Thank you so much. The first question I have for you is, what do you think the importance of community is for people with disabilities as well as the LGBTQ plus community? I'll start. Communities are where a lot of people on the fringes of both communities find themselves. I have had type 1 since I was 9, but I didn't really understand what being disabled meant until I found a community on Twitter. So I really stepped into owning my disability status, identifying as disabled, and it brought me a lot of connections, a lot of hope. Hope and joy are where our communities shine for, for me at least. And especially in this moment of this pandemic, we're all dealing with so much loneliness and reaching out to people that we know that have similar life experiences to us is kind of a tether in all the storm going on right now. This is Effie. So I honestly think that community for any marginalized group is everything. But honestly, especially because <laughs> I identify with both groups, but especially for disabled people and folks in the LGBTQIA plus community. You know, if we're going by history alone, we know that people with disabilities have traditionally been segregated from society. And so that's why the recent film on Netflix, Crip Camp, I really, really loved. It's, I think, a radical insight into what community looks like for folks with disabilities. I mean, as it turns out, we are just like everybody else. We have friends, we like exploring our sexuality, playing instruments, having dance parties, literally everything that non-disabled people do. We just literally have differing access needs. And kind of going along with what Julie said, same kind of goes for the LGBTQIA plus community and that we have both faced such societal stigma. The phrase, nothing about us without us, kind of is what first jumps to mind for me, which was really spearheaded by the disability community. And now I hear it everywhere. So it's really cool that that resonates with people. And I think it really shows that 
having that peer-based kind of community is so, so important. Yeah, like in this pandemic time, you know, queer people are especially going to be at risk for losing their jobs. I mean, they're, it's hard to get hired if you don't present the way society expects you to already. But I think one thing that is so amazing about our communities is how we provide mutual aid for each other. If you know someone's out of work, well, I know three people I can ask to throw in $10 and maybe that person gets to eat that day. And while we still fight for the structural changes that need to happen, it's a beautiful thing to see our communities aid each other. Absolutely. Kind of my mantra lately, community care, you know, who takes care of us, we take care of us. Agreed. I, I really agree with that. Community is so important and uh, we do take care of each other. My next question is a sort of follow-up to that. Since you both are both advocates and activists, would you mind telling a little bit about your advocacy in these communities? Sure. I'll start. My actual first foray into activism was after the Pulse Massacre. I, like many in the queer community, just was devastated by it and I felt like I had to do something. So I started on Facebook reporting gun sales that were not supposed to be happening and that kind of got me interested in especially online activism as being a disabled person. And so I've helped several movements. I, I'm type 1 diabetic, so I'm involved with the Insulin for All movement, providing affordable, I want free insulin to diabetics everywhere because it is such an expensive medication. And my our community is, you know, very tightly bonded. We are always crowdsourcing insulin for people. So that's kind of the stuff I do on a day-to-day basis. That's fantastic, Julie. So I actually kind of got my start into advocacy and activist work as an equip leader with Able South Carolina, kind of what Aja's really excelling at today. I worked as an equip leader from almost the beginning of the program's inception as a year-round program, not just a six-week summer series. And I did that until about two years ago. So aside from sharing my lived experience as a disabled young adult. I really, really focused my advocacy work on things like sexual health education and LGBTQI plus intersectionality for the disability community. Some examples of that where I served on a coalition such as SASH, the State Alliance for Adolescent Sexual Health, and representing an event such as the Safe School Summit, which was a annual summit to highlight the kind of violence that happens in schools and for young adults when it comes to like bullying and all the things that kind of intersect with that. And so I really focused on how that impacts students with disabilities, young adults with disabilities, as well as I eventually really kind of came into activism as a fat liberationist and kind of pushing for awareness around that as well. Thank you. So we've already started touching on this. Uh, what topics and issues do you think overlap between communities? The one that I think most people in the LGBTQIA community don't fully realize is that not all disabled people, including queer disabled people, can get married. If you rely on Medicaid, it could be very possible that getting married would remove your status from Medicaid. I am currently in that situation. And so it gets, you know, I, I try to tell people that marriage equality hasn't fully come all the way to everybody and that the fight's not over. So that's definitely one area that overlaps. Julie, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I feel like that is an issue that constantly gets overlooked. So thank you for bringing that up. For me, 
while I think there are a lot of similar overlaps between the queer and the disability communities, such as things like underrepresentation and things like media and educational curriculum, both communities deal with microaggressions and systemic prejudice. And both communities have had their own prominent civil rights movements in the U.S. There's still, however, certain ways in which our stigmas are actually complete opposites. And I really noticed this doing advocacy work for young adults is that while queer folks are hypersexualized, disabled folks tend to be desexualized and presumed to be asexual, therefore not needing sexual health education. And where queer folks are vilified and kind of viewed as deviants, disabled folks are pitied and viewed as incompetent. So I just think it's it's really interesting how both these communities intersect, both of them grow through a lot of similar barriers. It's just interesting to see how some, they're complete opposites. And I think that's really something that needs to be accounted for. Uh, when I was in pharmacy school, I, I got a chance to really see how systemically oppressed queer people are, as well as disabled people in the medical community. I mean, as far as even just accessing queer affirming, trans affirming doctors here, it's difficult sometimes. Even having coverage to go see those doctors, you know, very expensive and our state has not expanded Medicaid as it should have when the ACA was passed. So unfortunately, like, you know, disabled folks, queer folks, and then especially black queer disabled folks are at such a high risk of being overlooked by the medical community. And you see that playing out in this pandemic where black people are dying at such a higher rate of this. And we know why. And as a queer disabled person, I, I have a doctorate and I still have a hard time getting doctors to take me seriously, to listen to me. And Again, that's where it comes back to community is sometimes you can't find doctors that do that and your community's got to be there for you to either help you find new providers. I mean, honestly, there's been times where I've seen people who realize that they had a condition that they needed to get seen thanks, thanks to communities talking. But those structural ones, especially medical racism, is one that cut, you know, it's intersectional struggle. We have to look at those that are most at risk and try to get them what they need. And so I, I think, you know, Medicare for All is those plans that if if we were able to get there, think of all the disabled people who currently are underemployed because, you know, maybe they need they need the Medicare, like I'm on SSDI. I need my Medicare and Medicaid. I can't really go work part time right now because I am too ill too. But if I were feeling like I could, it's sometimes difficult to then have health coverage. So having universal health coverage is going to allow queer disabled folks to open up businesses. It's going to allow them to start nonprofits more easily because that side of it will be taken care of. So that's something that I'm passionate about. There are issues people face as people with disabilities, and there are issues that people face as queer trans people. What issues and topics do you think are important that happen in the spaces where that crosses when uh, these identities come together? One issue, I guess, is who we're centering when we have our stories told, queer disabled people. When looking at things like I believe discrimination and misunderstandings in both disability and LGBTQIA plus spaces. As somebody with 
these multiple identities, this is kind of where things get frustrating for me as someone who both has a significant disability as well as being a gender and sexual minority. I have found that despite both communities having so many intersections and so many shared oppressions, it's still really difficult to find a place where both my identity and access needs are respected at the same time, Mm -hmm. right? So in queer spaces, it is often very difficult to find things like specifically disability inclusion, whether it's Mm -hmm. architectural um, accessibility, accessibility via like ASL interpretation, image video captioning, being accommodating of neurodivergency, et cetera. Absolutely. I stopped going to some conferences because I just got so tired of being overlooked. Conferences especially, I've just had a hard time and that's that's an area where we could employ like queer disabled people to have sensitivity training access training you need to make sure that your movements are open to not just queer people queer disabled people our stories matter and we want to tell them but we got to get where we where we're able to do so and you know being overlooked it hurts it hurts and kind of on the flip side in disability community spaces I have honestly found it personally near impossible to have things like my identity and my pronouns as a non-binary person respected and used. So I think there is still a lot of work to be done as far as like disability inclusion in the queer community and queer inclusivity in the disability community. And that's just, I'm trying to do everything I possibly can to kind of marry the two and make it easier for people like myself who have these multiple parts of our identity kind of respected and taken seriously. I also really felt that in higher education when I was in grad school, being queer and being disabled was really tough to navigate in a conservative professional environment. And that's where so much growth could be done is just like the sort of respectability thing that people expect from queer people and queer disabled people, kind of breaking down the notions that we have to use the tone of voice you want to hear to tell you why you're wrong. But in higher ed, it was tough because I didn't want to be seen as deficient in my program and not deserving of my degree. But what was really happening was that my professors weren't taking my access needs seriously. They were punishing me at times for it for time missed or, you know, different things. And I I know that it's really hard in academia for queer and queer disabled people to get positions where honestly they do a ton of good as far as inclusion and access. Somebody in both the communities, one thing that has been really helpful to me is honestly the app Twitter. It has really become a space that I feel like activists within the disabled community have really been thriving. It's given a lot of visibility, especially in terms of activism. And so that's one of the places where I feel like a lot of people can learn from and access what these activists are doing in like real time. Yeah, sometimes I'll just actually Google like disability hashtags. And I I often find people with big platforms, they'll have little write-up of these hashtags like disabled people are hot or, you know, disabled isn't a bad word or, you know, there's, there's a bunch of hashtags and I always find people to follow and talk and connect with through those, again, through Twitter. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to have to also say Twitter has been a wonderful resource for me connecting, especially with disability activists and also just, just the peer support that you find there online for either community. 
And for those who are a member of both, you know, there's lots of peer support out there. And that has been very helpful for me to, to learn more about myself and be able to do the things that I want to do because I've spoken to people who have been in similar situations before. So thank you for that. I would say another resource is like, you know, find, you know, queer artists. Like if you're into music or arts or things, Columbia has a great art scene that, that you know, is always open to finding new people to add to. So like once, once we get past where we can have, you know, people and gatherings in larger spaces, you know, the arts community is always where you find resilience and the people that are the most resilient are the ones, you know, oppressed at these intersections. So that's another place that I tend to find friends. Oh, thank you. So my next question, what would make the LGBTQIA plus space and disability spaces more accessible for their members who are a part of both communities? Honestly, I just want both communities to have better awareness of each other. And honestly, even going beyond awareness, acceptance. We have so much in common, so much overlap in the folks that make up these communities. I just want people with these intersecting identities like myself and like Julie and like Aja to feel at, seamlessly at home in both groups. And I know with the autistic community specifically, pushing for not just awareness, but pushing for acceptance. And I think that can kind of be carried into this kind of situation as well. Because it's like, you know, we know we exist, right? They, other people know we exist. And I think it's more of just a matter of pushing for not just knowing we exist, but actually how to accommodate us. And even past accommodation, how to put people like us in power positions, in the positions, you know, that a lot of time traditionally, if it's the LGBTQIA movement, it was generally like white gay men as the cis men as the face. And getting more people who are disabled and, and queer in these positions where we can have change and make it more accessible for disabled people is really important. That sort of like pass the mic mentality. Oh, absolutely. And I, Julia, I think you hit it on the head earlier. It's just kind of thinking about who are we centering in these communities? Who is underrepresented? I don't think it's a matter of speak up for the voiceless, which is kind of a terrible way to phrase things. I think yeah. it's exactly, it's past the mic, give people yes. the opportunity and the access to speak up for themselves. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, one specific thing that tears at my heart specifically that cuts definitely both is if we think about incarceration, how disabled people are treated in prison. Like I don't see a ton of activists that are disabled activists that are specifically focus on abolition. I want to find more of them because I, I've seen stories of how chronically ill and disabled people and queer trans folks in, in incarceration situations, I don't think that advocacy for them gets talked about nearly as much as it should, especially in a state like South Carolina. Right. The school to prison pipeline is one mm -hmm. that definitely jumps to mind affecting. Exactly. It's affecting primarily like people of color, Black people especially, and intersecting again with disability, you know, folks with psychiatric issues mm -hmm. that are deemed behavioral and then just get honestly like shut down by the system, which it was built to do. So exactly. <laughs> again, so many good things. <laughs> Both 
people with disabilities and LGBTQIA plus people are overrepresented in the carceral system. And when you factor in race, especially black people, the disparities become even more obvious. So thank you for talking about that. So my next question is, what experiences do you have with pride in both communities? And how do you show that pride? Pride through art is just so beautiful to me. The art that people create in these challenging times, whether it be like Effie and I, we both love makeup and to express ourselves through that. But visual arts, all of it like, Pride Month makes, Pride Month gives me joy like it should, that sense of community and in times where, you know, society wants to separate us, Pride is very much a coming together moment. So for me, I just, I like to hang my bisexual Pride flag outside my house, you know, do bright makeup and have fun. And, you know, unfortunately this year, it's kind of up in the air whether people will be able to gather. So I'm interested to see the creative ways that people have pride this year and create that that resilience art that's just inspiring and makes me want to keep fighting. I think the way that I have and show the pride that I carry in both these communities is super radical. So between reclamation of the term queer as an all like all-encompassing term that I feel really fits both my gender identity and my sexuality and then something like embracing identity first language for describing my experience as a disabled person. Language, honestly, I think can be a really great way to show pride because it's not just who we are, it's how we describe who we are. And through language especially, I I don't like to use, you know, all these euphemisms for my identity like the hashtag campaign, say the word. I think it's really important to highlight that like disability, disabled, it's not a bad thing. There's one that's disabled people. Disabled people are hot. That is a good one to check out that hashtag. Yeah, but created by Andrew Gerza. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, there's such great hashtags that disabled people, like it's been so joyous to see like expressions of sexuality for like you said earlier, Effie, that you normally are ignored by society or people surprised that disabled people are sexual and it's just right it's it's odd to me at first because I've never considered that being Mm -hmm. the possibility or the reality but pride I think also educates people who are not part of either community about how they are treating people in the in the communities and again like you said modeling language teaching a lot of I don't like allies as a term but you know people that show solidarity with our communities teaching them how to use the language and then go out in their communities and help kind of spread this acceptance awareness is also just like really important it's hard to measure word of mouth change but it is one of the most foundational ones is teaching people in your life who you are why they should how they're not respecting you potentially but how they could do better and how they can show you love because that's what both communities really do, you know, survive on is the love that we find in our communities. Thank you for those wonderful responses. I definitely look forward to seeing what Pride looks like this month. And I hope that we find a way to show that sense of community and to share that love, even though we may physically be separated. And I think the disability community does a good job of that too. So perhaps that's something that we can share. My last question is moving forward, 
what changes are you working on or what changes would you like to happen within these communities, how these communities interact with each other? Can jump on this one. So kind of like I mentioned before, my advocacy work has always really been specifically tuned to highlighting the similarities between these two communities and how we're so much stronger together. I guess as an example, I attended a trans and queer focused camp within the last two years. And while it was an amazing experience, I was able to join other campers following the event, other campers with disabilities and pushing for better future accessibility. We actually kind of came together as a group and put together a letter that we sent to the nonprofit org that was hosting the camp. And honestly, we saw some really great change through that advocacy work. And I think that's just a a testament to the kind of work that we can do together. And honestly, that's, that's kind of just the hope I carry for not only the future, but for the present. You know, I think we do place a lot of place a lot of hope in talking about the future, but also we can't, we have the tools we need to make the present better now. And I think through these group advocacy efforts for both ourselves and on behalf of others, we will reach full inclusion no matter where or who we are. Yeah, on and sort of building on that, I think one of the most important thing any movement or community or nonprofit or or activism group, whatever you, you always need to be looking inward and interest being introspective about who you're leaving out in your org, who's not being listened to, and just to really address things within the community such as, you know, fat oppression, um, racism in both communities. It's, and like, you know, talking about language, I see a lot of times people in my queer community, unfortunately, using language online that's very, you know, disabled, you know, making fun of mental illness, calling different political leaders fat, and trying to get them to understand that our struggles are united because no one is free until we all are. Um, so a lot of introspection, I think, needs to be done constantly, not just when, like, if there, you know, is any sort of incident or outrage, that's not necessarily the time to introspect. It should be going on all the time. And that's kind of what I like to, when I, you know, talk to new younger activists, you know, really get into their head about, you know, really taking a step back. Because sometimes you want to help something so badly, but you don't realize you're not giving the help that the person needs. That's the case, then, you know, there's really no point in organizing or doing what you're doing. So that's a really important thing moving forward that, you know, really all communities need, but especially, you know, our queer and disabled communities. Uh, Thank you all for zooming in here today. Um, Any final remarks? Um, Yeah, just kind of as a final comment on kind of what we've been sharing today and Julie I really really think you kind of hit it on the head there at the end is like uh, I think inclusion is not an end goal it's a journey and it's one that never ends and so like you said I think we need to constantly be introspective we always need to commit ourselves to once we know better we do better you know it's not offensive being called out (laughs) when you're like using the wrong language doing something that is not actually helping the community or trying to help um you know kind of going on the 
intent versus impact model, you know, I think we just need to be mindful of what our impact is. And I think that that will really help, you know, this inclusion that we're trying to reach. So, but Aja, thank you so much for having us on here today. It was really great to be able to speak on our experiences. I was going to add just one last thing. I want to speak to like some of the listeners out there right now who maybe haven't identified with the community fully. Pride as a queer person and pride as a disabled person aren't time sensitive. Just because you aren't visible and loud in your work that you're doing as a queer disabled person, it, it's not time sensitive. We, we, we welcome you with open arms to the community, but it is all about self-exploration too and figuring out you know, where you fit in, where you need support and where you need communities. So if you're not quite there yet, it took me time to identify as disabled. But once I did, I found so much love and support that I just want to encourage people to look for communities because it's a lonely time right now. Thank you all for being here today. And thank you to our listeners. Able South Carolina is here for you and we want you to be here with us. So subscribe to our email, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and contact us by phone. Parks in the Access Style, a production of Able South Carolina.